Welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. Um, I'm really excited to get back at this. I know it's been a little bit of a a gap between the the last podcast, but uh, New Year's, new beginnings. So I thought I'd start off this year with uh, Dr. David Renault. Uh, Dave is a veterinary epidemiologist in the Department of Popular Medicine at the University of Guelph. Uh, He received his uh, DVM from the University of Guelph in 2014 and worked in private practice full and on a part-time basis for four years. Dave obtained his PhD in epidemiology from the Department of Popular Medicine. His research focuses on health and welfare of the dairy calves. Dave teaches both the veterinary and the undergraduate curriculum. So Dave, I'm excited to have you on. It's the first podcast I've done with calves and I don't know why it took me so long. Well, thanks for having me, Keith. Uh, nice to, uh, yeah, break, uh, break out the calves for this podcast. Yeah. So, uh, I think, uh, over the years, I know I've seen the industry switch a lot. Um, from, you know, just the calves were kind of in the back corner of the barn and they weren't really looked after. And, and now I think the, that they're, uh, they're seen as more an investment or a bank account and kind of what producers are putting in, they're getting out. So um, maybe share your path a little bit of why you're interested in calves and, and how you got started and what kind of directed you to the university. Yeah. So yeah, a little bit about my journey. I, I think uh, when I started in vet school, I honestly didn't really think about calves. I think that, you know, the mentality, like you said, has shifted quite substantially over the past few years. Um, but yeah, I kind of went through vet school knowing I was going to be a, some type of dairy veterinarian, you know, do herd health and check cows repro status and do, you know, DA surgeries and that type of thing. Um, but to be honest, what really got me started in it was, uh, working with a veal operation that, uh, um, yeah, I worked with for a number of years now, but, uh, they really started me in, getting an understanding of calves and all the challenges that they face. And that kind of led me to kind of develop a bit of a passion for calves and uh, ultimately led me to go back to the university and, and do a PhD focused on calf health and how we can really improve the, you know, health and, and well-being and, and productivity of those, of those uh, group of animals. Yeah, I know. And I, and I know the veal side of things I've, is one of the tougher sectors in agriculture. And I think one of the th- biggest things that I know that you focused on is, is mortality and, and navel infection. So why, like, why start with the, with the navel? Like, I know it's, it's incredibly important to, to take care of, but like, what is, what was the interest? Cause I know you've done a lot of work with that. Yeah. I think, I think one of the big surprises out of the project that I did was when we we evaluated about 5,000 calves arriving to uh, one particular veal facility, and we just did a basic physical exam on them. So just kind of checked a bunch of stuff, you know, did they have diarrhea? Did they have respiratory disease? You know, all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that we we evaluated was we grabbed the navel, just reach underneath the calf and, and feel the navel. And what was really surprising was about 25% of calves coming into the facility had some type of navel infection. So it was a way higher than what we had previously estimated. Um, you know, most, I think most estimates would be around, you know, three to 5% of calves would have a navel infection, but we found it was much higher than that. So because of that, you know, that project, it led us to do a bunch of different work on navel infections and, and trying to 
understand how we can better prevent them, um, you know, how we can manage them a little bit better when they arrive to the, the veal facility with a naval infection. And um, yeah, it kind of led to a, a bunch of different work on that in that particular area. Yeah, because like even like 15 years ago when I was in the industry, nobody really talked about it. And now I feel like it's pretty standard practice to do uh, like a navel dip and make sure that the that the calves are uh, taken care of that way. And I know it's funny, like once you start watching cows, it's one of the first things that they go after when the calf is born, when they start licking is at the navel. Yeah, I totally agree. And and actually it, it's kind of interesting. We just finished doing a project at, at the university. One of my uh, graduate students or former graduate students, Matthew Van Camp uh, did this uh, project where we did a, we tested umbilical dip to see if that could be an effective strategy to prevent it. And what's interesting is lots of people do it. Like everyone, you go to lots of farms and, and see umbilical dip being commonly used. But what we found in this project is if you just do a single umbilical dip, um, it really doesn't do anything when you compare it to not dipping the navel at all. So it, yeah, some kind of newer research is, is coming out kind of showing that maybe the single, when you just go in and, and dip the umbilicus at birth, it might not be the most effective strategy to prevent umbilical infections. What we found was more important was getting, you know, a good amount of colostrum into calves quickly, making sure you have a clean maternity area. Those were kind of some of the more important factors than, than just going and doing an umbilical dip. Like it's still good practice to dip though. Yeah. I, yeah. To be honest, I, I think it's not, it's not a bad thing to do. It's not, not going to cause harm, but I think, I think when you just go and do a single dip, I think that's probably mm-hmm. not enough. So you might have to do multiple dips or something like that for, to get it to be effective. Um, but yeah. just a single dip, I think, is not a, not a not effective enough, I guess, to prevent an umbilical infection. See, this is why we have you on. We've already <laughs> learned something today. <laughs> learn, learn something new. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you touched on colostrum there. Like I know, it's like everybody talks about it so much. Like if you had to pick three things in in calf rearing what would the top three kind of be? And I know probably colostrum, colostrum, colostrum might be your answer. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone's sick of hearing about colostrum. I, I think it's uh, beaten to death almost that, you know, colostrum is really important and every vet talks about it. You know, lots of uh, industry people talk about it when they go into farms, but to be honest, the, if you look at all the research that's ever been done on calves, really the most important thing you can do, the single most important thing you can do, is to get colostrum into a calf quickly. Like that's really will get the calf off to the, the best start possible. So yeah, colostrum I think is is quite important. Other things to consider I think is, uh, you know, nutrition, like how much we're feeding individual calves. I think that's re- quite important as well. Lots of research showing that when you feed calves more milk, they're going to grow faster, they're going to be healthier. Um, so lots of advantages to feeding a higher plane of nutrition to calves or more milk to calves. And then I guess the last thing would be the environment, you know, how we're getting air into the barn, making sure we're not drafting the calves, making sure we have good amount of bedding um, around the calves is also really, really critical to get them off to a good start. Yeah, I know it's uh, it's amazing. It's kind of come full circle. I know we see a lot of like commercial dairies where they started, uh, you know, with calf barns and things like that. And it seems like everybody's kind of migrating back towards a hutch or maybe even just building a barn that they could put hutches in where they're out of the weather a little bit. Um, like when we talk about environment, like what's the the most important thing when we're, when we're talking 
like airflow or cleanliness or or how dry it is or how wet it is like what what are some things there that we can look at yeah i think i think airflow is pretty critical especially when you're housing tabs uh, inside and especially in group housing you know auto feeders and that type of thing having enough airflow or air exchange in the barn is really important so in the winter time you want to have at least four air exchanges that are happening per hour ideally the challenge can be sometimes is how do we deliver the air into the barn such that we're not, you know, getting a draft of the tabs. So using like positive pressure tubes um, and setting those up is can be quite effective when they're designed properly and, and set up um, well. And then other things in the environment, I think you touched on it, you know, making sure that the environment is dry is important. Um, if you have a wet environment, it's easier to chill the calves, especially in the winter. And then also making sure that you're cleaning it every once in a while to make sure you're reducing the amount of, you know, bacteria and viruses and all the other things that can cause calf diarrhea is also quite important. I wish there was a silver bullet out there to way to raise calves because I know it's, it's as somebody who works with producers on a daily basis, it's really hard to find a one size fits all other than saying like what you're talking about is getting back to the basis, you know, make sure they get lots of colostrum, make sure they stay dry, make sure you feed adequate amounts of, of milk, whether it be whole or replacer. Um, with colostrum, I, I guess I want to kind of circle back to that. Can you maybe explain a little bit more? Like I know, like you said, we've kind of beat it to death, but I think when you go back to some of these fundamental things that we really need to to look at, like what are some things that can producers do on farms that help them with their colostrum management to make sure that they are getting a, the highest quality and b the kind of the cleanest colostrum into those calves. Like, I think one of the first things that I would do is I would, I'd probably try and check to see where do, where does my farm fall in terms of a successful transfer of that immunity from colostrum. So having their vet come out and taking blood samples from calves that are one to nine days of age or one to seven days of age, and just seeing, you know, are the calves actually meeting that threshold of getting enough of that immunoglobulin from the colostrum absorbed um, into their system? I think that's the first place to start. Because if, you know, if, if you're finding you're getting really good success and your calves are getting a lot of those immunoglobulins that are passing into circulation, then you probably don't need to spend a lot of time changing your colostrum program because it's probably adequate and ideal. But if you're, you know, your vet comes or, or you know that you're not, you know, getting those levels, the appropriate levels into blood circulation, you know, really, I think it goes back to making sure that you're getting the colostrum in quickly. I know that's not possible because everyone needs to have a life outside of farming as well. You can't spend 24-7 in the barn and, and feed colostrum, um, you know, at all times of the night. I think that's not realistic, but if you, if you can and you see the calving happen, you know, getting colostrum quickly into that calf is important. I also think, you know, looking at colostrum quality is important as well. There's ways that we can measure it really easily on farm, whether it's using, a, you know, some type of refractometer that you can do in, in a couple seconds and get a result. I think that's another thing to consider. Um, yeah, and, and I, think, I think, you know, making sure you're getting at least three to four liters to the, into that calf at first feeding, and maybe even feeding that colostrum for two feedings uh, might also be a good idea to kind of boost the success of uh, of the transfer of immunoglobulins into the calf. Is there things that impact absorption, like with colostrum? Like, can you maybe uh, talk about that a little bit? 
Sure, yeah. So I think the, the timing of feeding is, is really important for absorption. So the longer you delay to feed the calf, the more likely you're not going to get those you know, immunoglobulins in the colostrum absorbed through the intestine. So feeding it really quickly is, is quite important. So ideally within the first four hours of life, getting a colostrum feeding into them. And then the other thing that'll impact absorption is um, the amount of bacteria that you have in the colostrum. So if you have a colostrum that's really contaminated with bacteria because maybe the collection bucket you, you got the colostrum into is you know dirty or the feeding equipment you're using, the tube feeder or nipple bottle is, is contaminated. If you have lots of bacteria in the colostrum, it'll actually bind to the immunoglobulins and it can't pass through the intestine. So that will interfere with absorption as well. Because so it's, it's quickly, a, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of like an open, it's got like ridges in it and then that immunoglobin passes through the gut, right? So like That's what right. you're saying is that like that bacteria is, is not allowing it like to get through that barrier, correct? Yeah, like basically it makes too big of a, of a I don't know, molecule is not the right, right word, but too big of a mass for it to, to be absorbed through the intestine. So like really early on in life, the intestine, like you said, it's open. It's like called an open gut. And things can kind of pass through the intestine to the, the circulation, to the blood circulation. And if you have too much bacteria that makes too big of a mass, it really can't pass at all through the gut. And that's what prevents it from being absorbed. And then, the yeah, then in turn, the calves not absorbing that IgG and... Yeah, and so on and so forth. Sorry, I did cut you off there. <laughs> no, no worries. All good. <laughs> um, but yeah, just maybe back to a little bit about uh, like the how the bacteria affects the uh, absorption. I think that's the kind of the thought train we were going down there. So with colostrum too, like you always hear people say, "Oh, it's it's thick. It's 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 good." Is that is like is that just an old wise tale? Is there any truth to that? No, I don't think there's any truth to it. Um, I think if it's very difficult to determine that you have good quality colostrum if you just look at it visually or just look at the color, like it, 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 it isn't very accurate. So to really get high accuracy, you need to actually measure it using a refractometer and you can get a digital one where you put the colostrum onto, you know, a refractometer, press a button and it gives you a result. Mm -hmm. Or you can use an optical one and you just put it on you know, the refractometer look under light and it gives you your result, but you have to actually measure it to be accurate. Yeah, I know. And actually a refractometer is handy to have around a farm, not only for colostrum, but I've seen, uh, uh, beef producers that were strip grazing, like they'll go out and crush some juice and put it on the refractometer and look like that. Like anything that you're, I guess you're measuring sugar with, um, it's pretty handy to have. So if you're worried yeah. about blowing the budget on Amazon, you can use it <laughs> in different areas. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I think they're, they're really, they're cheap. They're, they're cheap, really aren't cheap. they? Yeah. 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 You can get like an optical refractometer for like, I don't know, 30 bucks or something like that. And a digital one for a hundred bucks. So they're quite yeah, cheap that's... because people use them for, you know, I think making wine or beer or something like that. So they're pretty inexpensive out there. Yeah. I'm just looking on Amazon right now, like 26 bucks yep. <laughs> <laughs> for just a regular, like the one I carry in my car is, yeah. So um, no, that's good. Um, and then what about transition milk? Like I know there's been some work done lately and maybe it's not talked about as much, uh, well, we really haven't had any meetings in the last couple of years to kind of get some of this information out, but 
like what's the what's the story behind transition milk and how it how it helps calves? Yeah, I think there's been a ton of interest in transition milk over the past few years and lots of research ongoing right now. And I think the the takeaway message is that feeding transition milk is is a really good thing. So if you you know look at traditionally what it's been defined as is you know milk from two to five days or or sorry two to five milkings after calving, but there's been shown to be a lot of benefit to feeding that because transition milk is very different than regular milk. It has higher levels of fat, higher levels of protein, higher amounts of energy, higher amounts of uh, immunoglobulins. And feeding that transition milk will improve the development of the gut, which will ultimately lead to better growth. It'll lead to lower levels of disease and, and you know, lots of benefits uh, from feeding it. So I think, I think that the takeaway message from the transition milk story is that there's a ton of benefit to feeding it. And all the research that's been done on it as of late is really highlighting or showcasing the value of feeding transition milk. So, yeah, so I think it really should, should be done on more farms, I think. Cause it kind of brings me to another question, like with scours and things like that, because you hear producers talk about while they're doing electrolyte therapy or they're doing um, other stuff, but like, is that a good fit where you can maybe incorporate some transition milk or, or some other practices around, you know, sick calves? Yeah, like so on, on some of the farms that I work with, um, we've incorporated this colostrum replacer into um, like basically feeding colostrum replacer for four, the first 14 days of life. So mm-hmm. you do your first two feedings of colostrum and then after that you feed colostrum replacer for 14 days at a very small volume. And um, trying to remember exactly what it is because it's probably helpful to, to give exacts, but I can't remember off the top of my head, but we feed a very small volume of colostrum replacer for 14 days. And if you look at the studies that have been done on that, they've shown that it leads to a pretty drastic reduction in diarrhea treatment and antibiotic treatment, and also leads to better level of growth. So on the farms that I work with, where we've implemented that, we found really big benefits to doing that. And typically, you know, lower levels of diarrhea is really commonly seen as a, as a, benefit of doing that type of program. So is it the IgG or is there other kind of intrinsic things that are in that product, like a product like that or transition milk that are helping out? Cause I know like we talk about IgG a lot, but there's a multitude of other hormones and things that are going on in that transition milk. Yeah, I think, I think traditionally we've really focused, like you said about IgG, but there's so many other things that are in colostrum um, that have an effect. Like, uh, for example, lactoferrin is a, is a good example of one, lots of other, you know, hormones and bioactive components. So it's really tough to say what, what's really having the effect. And if we kind of start stripping down to the different components, like looking at, I don't know, fat or protein and, and other kind of components and adding those into milk, it seems like the, you know, colostrum replacer when it's being fed together and for the 14 days has really the best effect out of anything that, that you could give. So I think it's really the combination of all the different components that are in there. So not just IgG, I think IgG maybe plays a, a smaller role, you know, in, during that time period. Maybe it's the other components that really have a, have a you know, more significant role that, that they're playing there. Yeah. Cause I know like, Cause I, I'd heard there was, I think it's what, like insulin growth hormone or things like that, that they were kind of going down that path too. And looking at, 
um, maybe some of it affects on, you know, I don't know if it was, if genetic programming is the right thing, but like helping that calf way down the line and growing, making sure that they're getting adequate to, of hormone. I, is that a hormone, I guess? Things yeah, like that. So. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think there's been like Mike Steele at the University of Guelph has been doing a ton of work um, in that area, really looking at the different components of colostrum and seeing the effect that it has. And yeah, what we found is, is really colostrum in general, just feeding colostrum is really the, the key. And, and maybe eventually we'll figure out the specific components that, that mm-hmm. have the effect, but, but right now we're, yeah, I don't think we know the, the benefits of each individual component yet. Well, I think like from a research standpoint, I don't, I think you guys are pretty much on the ground level right now with uh, colostrum and composition and things like that. Yeah. And, and Mike uh, in particular has done a lot of work on colostrum in general, and he has a, has a very significant project underway where they're looking at a bunch of different ways to, you know, feed colostrum differently around the time of birth, but also look at that transition milk feeding and also some other benefits that, that could uh, be, be found with, with feeding colostrum. And maybe a good example that I'll just throw out um, is one of our uh, master's students, um, Javi Carter, recently did a trial where she looked at feeding colostrum to calves that had diarrhea as like kind of a treatment. And what she found was that if you feed colostrum to calves, again, it's a small quantity, like not a ton, and you do it for eight consecutive feedings, typically you're going to get about a day to a day and a half less duration of diarrhea when you feed that colostrum. And you also get better levels of growth. So I think there's lots of benefits beyond just, you know, that first initial feeding of colostrum right at, right at birth. I think there's tons of benefits to either doing extended feeding of colostrum, you know, maybe using it as a treatment. And there's lots of research that, that still needs to be done to really figure out where, where else you could use colostrum uh, to have a benefit. Mm-hmm. It just boggles my mind sometimes, like uh, the more you learn, the less you know type thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of realize like, holy crap, we don't know anything about this. But um, I want to shift gears and talk about dams too, because I know I've asked this question a ton of times to people and I know that I haven't really got a straight answer, but what's the biggest effect on quantity? I know everybody goes back and talks about, you know, metabolizable protein and things like that. But I think if I'm not mistaken, those studies were done at incredibly low protein levels in the diets. So when they introduced some more, they got more colostrum, but you know, the modern kind of dry cow diet, whether it be one group or two group, you know, we're looking at 12 to 1500 grams of metabolizable protein, which should be adequate, but we're seeing fluctuations in the volume of colostrum. And I'm just wondering if there was any rhyme or reason to that yeah i mean that's a good question i don't think it's i don't think i'm gonna answer it for you uh here keith but um i I think i think it maybe the shift has been more towards under looking at energy like maybe that has a factor Mm -hmm. in 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 volume and that type of thing and i think yeah i think there's been some studies that have shown that when you feed a really low energy diet that could potentially influence the volume of colostrum that you're getting and also the quality of colostrum that you're getting as well but, um, yeah, I think it's one of those things that I don't think we've truly figured out the major influencers of that yet. No, and it's a question I get, like, I got asked it yesterday. It's like, but like, to me, 
I think there is some seasonal issues with it because it, it just seems like more this time of year is lower yeah. than, you know, I would say even probably November through March or April, you hear more about it than I do say through April, like the end of April through till October. Like everybody says they got lots and, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a business for some producers where they're selling some excess colostrum into um, the manufacturers of the, of the powdered stuff. And, it just seems, yeah, like this time of year, whether it be maybe the farmers are back in the barn, so they're noticing it more. <laughs> they're not so not so busy out in the field, but uh, I just wonder about seasonality. And then, yeah, like you said, with energy, but then it comes down to um, do we overfeed energy to dry cows to get colostrum, which then impacts transition health. So I don't know what's, yeah, what's the trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I think if you look at the research too, I think, I think the research would agree, Keith, like it certainly in the winter time with shorter day length, um, the colostrum volume is typically lower, um, Mm -hmm. from those cows that are calving in that, in that season. So for sure, there's some type of seasonality effect, but again, there's lots of unknowns, I think there in terms of like why and how we could manipulate it to improve colostrum volume and that type of thing. Yeah. And it's hard to get numbers. Like it's hard to get a like a good data set just because it's hard to replicate right yep. consistently and you know there's only so many cows calving on a farm we've got to go down to a bunch of i guess mega farms and try and collect their data and see what happens because like even like from your standpoint like from the university of guelph like would a study like that like be possible when you're running such like small sample sizes or like, how do you do that? Like, is that something that you go to the industry and say, hey, let's collect a whole bunch of data and kind of go from there? Yeah, I think that's where we go to, you know, larger commercial farms, like you said, and and try and collect data from from those guys. Um, yeah, more numbers that you can get, the better kind of quality of your data that you could potentially have. I mean, for certain things, not not necessarily for more experimental stuff, but Certainly when you're looking at, you know, understanding factors, influencing volume, I think going out to lots of large farms and measuring that stuff would be, yeah, probably the most useful way to do it. You got any ambitious grad students? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah, we could probably do yeah. something up. <laughs> um, I just want to kind of shift gears again here um, and talk a little bit about scours. Like I know you hear a lot in the, from producers about, oh, they've got a nutritional scour, they got this scour, that scour. Can you maybe just go through um, some of the timelines on some different scours and and what may cause them? Yeah, like I think I think probably most of the diarrhea or, or scours is caused by some type of infection, whether it's a bacteria, virus, or parasite. And yeah, maybe I'll just kind of go through the different uh, like pathogens and, and we can mm-hmm. have it chat about that. So if you're seeing diarrhea that's happening in the first kind of 48 to, I don't know, 96 hours of life, that's probably some type of E. coli diarrhea. So when you're seeing it really early on after, after birth, that's typically comes back to, to some kind of E. coli. And usually when you look at, you know, why it's happening early on in life, they're getting exposed to this E. coli bacteria in the colostrum. So if you're seeing it really on early on in life, probably going back, like, again, 48 to 96 hours of, of life, going back and looking at your, your collection process 
to make sure that's clean at each step would be an important thing to look at. So making sure the, the classroom's clean, maternity area's clean, feeding equipment's clean, all that kind of stuff would be something I would explore. If you're seeing it kind of where, where probably most diarrhea happens around seven to 10 days of life, um, I'd say probably most diarrhea happens during that time period. It's very difficult to differentiate the, the different uh, pathogens that are kind of causing it. So at that age, it, it could be a coronavirus, it could be rotavirus, it could be cryptosporidium um, causing that, where you, you know, maybe have a gradual onset of diarrhea, it lasts for, you know, maybe five days, and then kind of goes away. That's, yeah, more, most likely to be some type of rotavirus, coronavirus, or crypto. And you got to test then, for that, or will they kind of show positive for all three, maybe? Yeah, yeah, actually. At different we, levels. Yeah, we, we just did a study looking at the different like pathogens causing diarrhea. And a lot of infections are mixed. So they either have, you know, rotavirus and crypto or coronavirus and crypto. Um, it seems like a lot of mixed infections are out there. So it's, it's usually like a combination of the different pathogens that are causing it around that kind mm-hmm. of seven to 10 day mark. And then I guess the final one to consider would be a salmonella type uh, diarrhea. And those ones are typically, again, around that seven to 10 day mark, but a lot more severe, a lot higher level of mortality. Um, yeah, maybe you see some blood in the stool, that kind of stuff um, when you mm-hmm. have that type of salmonella. So those are probably the most common ones that you'd see probably in Ontario or, or even in Canada um, causing diarrhea. Yeah, and so what the... Like with producers, like, I guess, what's the best course of action? Like, I guess you have to look at preventative versus reactive um, treatments. So like you kind of mentioned on the preventative, clean, clean, clean on claustrum equipment, bedding, calving areas, et cetera. But what do you do for, for treatment, say, like, is electrolyte therapy something that makes sense or, you know, maybe some different things that producers can do? Yeah, I'd say probably the most important thing you can do to a calf that has diarrhea is, is give it fluids. So give it electrolytes. I think that's that's the most important thing you can do because when you think about diarrhea, why calves actually have to ultimately die from diarrhea is pretty commonly due to dehydration. So they're just losing so much fluids that they can't, you know, give blood flow to the organs that they need to survive. So if you can give electrolytes to calves, especially, you know, around the time where they start having diarrhea, that's really, really important because you're trying to replace all the fluids that they lost, you know, basically in their manure. So fluid therapy, you know, giving electrolytes, really, really critical to the success of, of uh, having that calf recover from diarrhea. I mean, other stuff, um, you know, using some type of um, uh, meloxicam or like an NSAID is, I guess, the more proper to say that would be important too. Um, there's some research to show that if you give meloxicam to calves with diarrhea, they have uh, yeah better gains, they recover faster. Um, so there's definitely some benefit to doing that as well. And then I guess there, you know the question that I often get asked as well is, well, what about antibiotics? Like when should we give antibiotics to calves with diarrhea? And to be honest, you really shouldn't give antibiotics to every calf with diarrhea. They don't really need it. It's probably reserved for maybe 10 to 30% of calves that actually need 
antibiotics to recover from it. And, and why they need antibiotics is because there's a bacteria that typically would enter into their bloodstream and they've become, you know, they have bacteria flowing through the bloodstream. So you need antibiotics to treat that. And again, it, it's probably really important to have a, a conversation with your veterinarian um, for those producers that are listening to, you know, develop a protocol that works for your farm. Um, you know, they, your vet probably would know the pathogens that are on your farm and, and how best to, to treat them. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, antibiotics can be used, um, yeah, not as commonly as they are uh, currently. Like, I think they can be reserved for some cases that are more severe um, and give them to those, to those, uh, those calves. Yeah, I know. I know it's a lot of focus of your study and, and, and in the industry in general is lowering antimicrobial use. And I think that part of it is making sure that you identify what the actual pathogen is causing it. Cause like you said, you know, if it's what seven to 30% or something like that, I, they said, uh, yep. might need it versus might not need it. You know, that makes a big difference when you're using the drugs, like drugs aren't getting any cheaper. No. And yeah. And if you, I guess if you could do some, some things, I, sometimes I think it's just easier for producers to use drugs to treat stuff. Like it's just, it's a tie. It comes down to time of the day. Like it's easier to stop and treat that calf than it is to kind of deal with it with a little bit more, uh, a nuanced report, uh, approach. Sorry. That's right. It's cold out. So with the way the temperature is here, what is the best way to mitigate cold stress? Like I know some producers talk about increasing the amount of solids in the milk. Like, do you increase solids? Do you feed more milk? Do you put calf goats on? Do you not put calf goats on? Do you, there's a million different things that you hear about. Can you maybe uh, share some of your expertise on it? Sure. Yeah. Like I, I think the the best way to mitigate cold stress is to give more energy. So whether that's increasing the con- concentration of the milk replacers that you're giving, that that is a is a decent way. Maybe increasing the amount of fat that that's being given in your milk replacer. If you're feeding milk replacers, a good way as well increasing volume or even simply increasing the frequency that you're providing milk can also be helpful. So mm-hmm. go from two times a day to three times a day in the winter um, is also a good way to do it. But really all, all the effort should be focused on really giving more energy to the calf. So yeah, feeding them more, more concentrates, feeding them more frequently. Those, those all those things can really be helpful to mitigate uh, cold stress. Other things to consider um, that have been found to be effective is bedding them in deep bedded straw, um, just so they can kind of nest or nestle within the the straw. It helps to insulate them a little bit better. And also calf coats. I think those are also a, a useful thing that you can do to, you know, again, keep the calf warm, decrease the amount of energy it's putting towards staying warm and, and more energy and as an effect will go towards them growing better. Is there a point at which like the calf is big enough or has enough caloric intake that, you know, the calf coat doesn't help or is that a good idea when we get into kind of these more severe temperatures? Yeah. Like I think if you look at when the calf is comfortable, meaning that it's not giving or expending energy to stay warm, it's usually like anything less than kind of 10 to 15 degrees Celsius would be that calf's actually expending energy to stay warm. So I think for calves that are, less than three weeks of age, I think that's where calf coats really can have a, a value where you keep them on it keeps them a little bit extra, you know, warmth and that type of thing. Um, and usually you can start that, you know, sometime when you're starting to see a consistent dip in temperatures that are less than 10, de- 10 degrees Celsius is where my kind of thumb rule would be. 
uh, for doing that. Yeah, because I know what the pushback will be. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. Put calves on, <laughs> coats on, <laughs> coats off. <laughs> and I know no. I've worked with calves enough. It's a pain in the butt doing anything when you're trying to handle them. So, Big time. Yeah, and I think I yeah I think that's the that's the challenge is I think there's a you know trade off with all the things that you need to do to uh, you know manage the, what's happening on the dairy farm lots of lots of uh, different things that that are happening on a daily basis and you got to prioritize your time to to be efficient um, which is why I would, I would say like giving more energy is probably more important than you know, putting a calf coat on and that type of thing. If you can feed them more energy, that's really the most important thing you can do. If you, you know, want to really fine tune it, putting calf coats, you know, deep bedded straw, that kind of stuff can really be helpful as well. Yeah. And I, I think we go back to the basics of, of newborns too, is dry, dry, dry. That's right. Um, what, what's too high on milk replacer? Like, can you go like is 15% solids? Like, is that your kind of upper limit on it or, like yeah, what are your I, thoughts on that? Yeah, I think anywhere between 130 grams um, to 150 grams per liter would probably be kind of the range I would be comfortable with. I know there's some people that are saying go a little bit higher, um, but yeah, the the I've seen the best results going at around 130 grams per liter, 250 grams per liter of milk replacer. I just wonder if you get it too concentrated, like it's too it's too dense that it just kind of passes through and, and doesn't get absorbed. Like I think you're better off to feed a bit more than maybe try and concentrate over that 15%. Just my own yeah, kind of yeah. equated thought. No, I think that's fair. I, I think, I think uh, when you give too much concentrated milk replacer, you can run into issues with like nutritional diarrhea or, you know, even some infectious types of diarrhea because bacteria will like to live off that extra nutrients that are in the, in the intestine. So I think, I think you're right. Like I'd, I'd rather probably increase volume than I would concentration, but in some circumstances, I think when you, you know, you're maybe you're maxing out your bottle capacity or, you know, that kind of thing, increasing your concentration a bit can certainly be helpful to, to get more energy into the calf. You talk about <clears throat> feeding more and I, I know a lot of producers are set up, you know, they got a three liter bottle or whatever like that. So there's a lot of, uh, it's hard for them to kind of shift that mentality for the winter. So I think it is sometimes easier to increase the concentration, but uh, the other thing you do is just feed more fat, like feed a higher fat milk replacer, like change your milk replacer rather than change your volume rate. So yeah, that's totally right. Absolutely. An interesting question I, I've thought about too, and, and I know it's maybe a little bit different in Europe than it is here, but like how long should a calf be left with the cow? Interesting question. Lots of debate on this uh, particular topic right now, to be totally honest. Um, well, I, I just think yeah. like yonis, for instance. Yeah. Like we have programs to try and eradicate it. And the longer you leave that calf there, the higher likelihood is she's going to contract some kind of some kind of pathogen. Yeah. So I think there's a battle between veterinarians, I think, and, and maybe animal welfare scientists where vets are really focused on how do we mitigate disease transmission? And that would be my focus. So I think there's lots of diseases like, like you said, Yoni's disease, even Salmonella Dublin, for example, can be yeah. transmitted in the maternity area. So anytime you have that calf with a cow, you're exposing it potentially to pathogens. There's probably ways to get around that. Maybe you have like a this is what I've recommended to a, a number of different producers is maybe you put a, a big water tub 
in the maternity area, put you bed it up, put the calf in there, you know, make sure that it's not getting exposed to the um, manure from the cow, you know, for the first maybe couple hours or whatever, if you don't want to pull it out right away. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly there's lots of debate on the welfare side about should we actually keep cows and cows together? Is that a good idea for the cow's well-being? Um, yeah, I think there's lots more research that needs to be done to really understand that and, and to really come up with a conclusive answer. Um, but probably for right now, I would say, yeah, pulling the calf out quickly is, is probably a decent idea to prevent disease from being transmitted from whether it be Yonis or Seminole Dublin, all that stuff that we just talked about. Um, it's probably a decent idea. If we go over to Europe, there's, there's actually new regulations in place where cows and calves have to stay together for a certain period of time. And there's, again, a really active amount of research happening in this field to really, again, understand the impact of having, of separating that calf, that calf from the cow. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure where that, where that's going to lead us yet. Um, But lots of, uh, lots of stuff happening there. And, and so what is the, the, I guess the other side of the, the question is like, what benefits does it provide the cow to leave the calf there? Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of concern about the separation and the effect that, that separating the calf from the cow could potentially have on the, the cow's kind of, the kind of state, like their her welfare state. And there's been, I think, some studies that have looked at like the motivation, like how motivated would cows be to get back in to see their calf? So they like put weighted gates. So you got a, the cow basically has to push through this really, really heavy gate to get to their, their calf. And I think they're, they're, you know, cows are pretty motivated to do that, to gain access to their calf. But yeah, like that, we're, we're really kind of diving into the, the welfare side, like really the different state that the animal is in herself. Like, um, yeah, I think, I think the, the benefits on the cow or calf side, probably from a productivity standpoint are probably limited and, and maybe it would even could potentially reduce productivity of the cow because the calf is maybe yeah. suckling the milk from the cow, but we're really kind of diving into detail and looking at the, the welfare state of those animals and, and seeing, you know, what's the impact of the welfare state. And I think if you, the reason this is coming up is that consumers are very concerned about this. If you tell it's the number one that, question, yeah, it's the number one question I get when people like you tell them what they do and like, why do they separate the cows and put them in the little white igloos? Yep. Like yep. it's the first question I get. Yep. And, and I, I know there's been some research that's shown that where they went out and actually did some consumer surveys and asked the consumers, you know, this is the, this is what it looks like on a, on a dairy farm, you know, they take the calf away from the, from the cow within the first hour of life. You know, what do you think about that? And consumers really don't like it. They really, really don't like it at all, especially when you're moving that calf into individual housing. So moving it, it that calf into a hutch, if you're moving into group housing, like that calf into group housing, I think there's a bit more public support surrounding that. Um, but the highest level of public support is keeping the cow and calf together. Um, so that's really what's driving it, I think, is, is this interest in keeping them together because maybe it's, it's better for the cow, I think, is ultimately what it comes down to. Well, and I know it really tugs at kind of the heartstrings, especially mothers, I think, because they, they just relate it back to 
what would happen if somebody took my baby from me? How would I feel about that? It's not something I think I would ever talk about on the podcast, but it's one of those things that they are our customers. They are consumers. They're buying our products. So we have to really be cognizant of what I guess the social social situation is that helps us keep these people coming to the store and buying milk and cheese and yogurt and, and all the other dairy products that are out there. So, Yeah, exactly. I think it's a really big sustainability question. And I think, yeah, maybe this is going a bit off topic, but I think maybe the dairy industry through time needs to evolve how they're marketing to these consumers where it's more, you know, giving reality rather than the big red barn on the hill that, you know, the cows are all frolicking outside. Maybe it should be more, you know, inside a freestyle barn or, you know, tie stall where they let them out here and there. But, you know, it has to be more realistic. So the consumer actually gets an accurate representation of what the the products they're actually producing come from. And I think DFO and their new kind of marketing stuff has done a decent job kind of highlighting that and showcasing that, you know, it's not this old red barn on the top of the hill where cows are outside all the time. It's more indoor, you know, freestyle housing um, where most of the milk is coming from. So I think that we need to really shift how we're engaging consumers and marketing to them to really give a realistic picture of what, what is happening in the dairy industry, I think. Yeah. And it's funny because I was at a farm recently and uh, the producer's uh, brother works in Toronto, downtown Toronto, and he had a friend and they said, oh, I'm from a dairy farm. So they drove from downtown Toronto two and a half hours up to this farm. And they were absolutely amazed by the amount of science and technology that's going on there. So I think there's a real opportunity to open up your farm and and bring these people out. And I've thought about it in the past too, is uh, you know taking some of my friends that maybe aren't in the food production system um, that are working in, in different industries and, and just bring them up to the farm and show them, you know, what's actually going on because like just from a cow's milk production standpoint, like she's eating, like, I, I just use this analogy is like, she, that cow's eating like eight to 10 times the amount of calories that Michael Phelps did when he was in his prime, you know, winning all these Olympic gold medals, like, like what these cows metabolically are capable of is is unreal and i think if we share that kind of story with producers like they're like oh this is you know this is really cool yep you know but even even you know just to add to that i think even when you talk to consumers i have lots of friends i live in the in the city i live in cambridge um lots of neighbors around we always they always you know talk about what's happening with my job and stuff and uh even when you talk to them about you know that a nutritionist comes and balances the ration or a veterinarian comes out you know, every two weeks to see the animals like is consistently there. They're blown away. They they really are shocked that, you know, someone actually balances the ration, does all this stuff or that, you know, robots are milking cows and, and you know, you get all this data from the individual cow. They're yeah. they're they're blown away. So you mean I think cows you really wear gotta... Fitbits? Yeah. Exactly. Cows wear Fitbits? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, I... I know. And it's like, I, I was explaining to these people like, yeah, a cow eats way better than humans do. Like we know down to the second or third decimal point of, of theoretically what they, what she should be taking in. Right. So yep. yeah, I thought it was just interesting, but, um, so what's the next frontier in, in calf raising or, or calf management, calf rearing? Like what's the, what's Dave's grad students like? Cause I think you have what, seven, six or seven grad students, eight grad students, maybe. Yeah, I got, with? uh, yeah, a number of different grad students. Um, 
what we're looking at right now is um, is we're really focused on technology. Um, how can we use technology to make life easier for the producer and life better for the calf? So how can we use stuff like automated milk feeders to predict disease and maybe intervene before they even develop disease? That's kind of what we're working on right now. Um, other stuff we're looking at is, is uh, to understand when we should treat calves with diarrhea, how we should treat cows with diarrhea to really prevent them from having a lot of the negative consequences of a case of diarrhea, so lower growth and ultimately lower productivity. How do we mitigate those, those factors? That's what we're spending a lot of time looking at is, is really focused on preventing disease. And if disease does happen, how do we treat it better so that calves don't die and don't have lower levels of growth and all that different stuff that happens when they get it. That's such a huge topic. And I, uh, I wish you all the best, Dave, and I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know I, uh, I learned a ton of stuff this morning, and I hope that uh, that producers do too. Is there any way that, uh, like, if a producer wanted to get a hold of you, like, how would they how would they do that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they can fire me off an email, and uh, I can put it in the. Sh- I can, I'll send you over my email, but it's r e n a u d d at uoguelph.ca. But I'll I'll send it over to you, Keith. Perfect. Well, thanks again, Dave. I. Uh, I really appreciate it, and uh, I wish you all the best, and stay warm there. I know it's a little bit warmer today, but uh, it looks like we're headed back into some colder stuff. So, yeah, Thanks, Keith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trout Nutrition Canada and our SureGain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player, and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.